Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, blockades continue to spread and are now blocking traffic and go trains along Highway 6 near Caledonia and York Boulevard here in Hamilton. How's this affecting the community? Well, we'll talk about it. Time running out for Hamilton's Transportation Task Force as they only have a couple more weeks to decide what to do with that billion dollars from the provincial government. And more than two years after allegations started, Harvey Weinstein was found guilty yesterday on two charges laid against him. Is this a step forward for the hashtag MeToo movement? The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, of course, we know that uh, Ontario Provincial Police moved in to break down the barrier that was going on near Belleville. And we had anticipated at that time that that there might be some ramifications to that. Well, that has happened, and it's happened right here in our area. Uh, As you've been hearing all morning on CHML News, the uh, GO trains have been shut down here around the Hamilton area because of a blockade that has been put up. And uh, another one has uh, surfaced in Caledonia, just uh, south of Caledonia, actually, on Highway 6. Uh, blockades have appeared along that area. Uh, and, uh, well, it's kind of a sense of deja vu, I think, for some of the residents of Caledonia. Uh, Mayor of Haldeman County, Ken Hewitt, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us on a very busy day, I'm sure. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Bill. Unfortunately, it would be nice to get on your show for other purposes and reasons out here in Haldeman. I'm looking forward to that, too. Uh, when did you find out about the blockade, Ken? Uh, well, yesterday in the uh, in the afternoon, that uh, we were notified by the OPP that uh, the road was going to be blocked. So how does how does the town react to this? How does Haldeman react to this, obviously? I mean, uh, Highway 6, is there's a lot of people use that road on a daily basis to and from work. Uh, and I mentioned, I wasn't trying to be flippant at all, but, I mean, this is a sense of deja vu once again. I mean, we went through this a, a few years ago, and it was a long, arduous task to try to get some resolution to that. Did you get any sense at all about, uh, about what's going to be happening, how long this is going to be in place? Uh, well, we haven't. Uh, we're hoping to get some some more sense of that today. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think people here certainly are are, are not accepting of of the issue, but they they have a, a whole different appreciation and understanding of what's uh, what's gone on over the years. So you know, when you see what's happening nationally uh, and, and people complaining about uh, protests, whether they're legal, illegal, or, or uh, uh, rule of law and all that uh, in terms of what it defines people just can simply around here say well welcome to the party because we've certainly been exposed to it for for many years what's it been like up there for the last little while was there has, has there been any tension that you that any discernible tension that you've noticed none none whatsoever in fact it's been uh, you know i think the relationships have improved over the years uh we've been working well with six nations uh, as they have with us mm-hmm. and we have a great relationship with uh with with the leaders on on, on their community and 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 I, I believe there's a, a whole different understanding. And I think it goes further, Bill, in that, you know, it's not a question of whether a protest is legal or illegal uh, or, or or a peaceful one or not. I think there has to be some, some further exploring into the idea of when a protest becomes disruptive, is it is it something that we can continue to support? Because it is disruptive to the public and it affects their ability to, you know, to earn an income, to get to work, to to navigate through uh, their day-to-day affairs. And that's where we have to look at, you know, how can a protest simply be allowed but not be allowed to disrupt the rights of others? Is any traffic getting through, or is the, or is the highway just totally closed down? Uh, the traffic's getting through uh, around the town, of course, but uh, the highway is closed uh, uh, through the bypass. All right, so that's off limits, as, as it was last time. I think a lot of us can still have the mental image in our heads anyway of the uh, the old hydro tower that was dragged across the road at one point during the, some of those demonstrations last time. 
Uh, who do you talk to? I mean, how do you how do you create this dialogue that uh, that is going to be obviously very necessary here to try to to find out what's going on and and hopefully resolve some issues. Well, from from my perspective, there's there's I guess two things, and one is is um, you know the provincial government's responsible for you know for the management of the highway through MTO, and, and uh, so our local MPP uh, will I'll be contacting them and, and looking to have a conversation and a meeting with them to discuss you know what their steps forward are. The other issue I think, Bill, is it goes back to you and I talked to many you know many years ago was. Is, Trying to deal with this issue from the bottom up just simply doesn't allow it to go away. And I, I really believe that it takes a top-down approach. And, and while the Prime Minister certainly made comments of, of, of reconciliation, he set certainly an expectation that I don't think has been realistic and certainly hasn't been attained. And in looking at the Indian Act and looking at how we manage the situation from the top down, I think is truly going to get us to a solution uh, where we can no longer see these types of protests on the roads. Well, uh, interestingly enough, as you go down through the chain of command, I guess, Ken, uh, you mentioned your MPP. Toby Barrett, of course, knows about this. He was around the last time, too. Uh, so he knows what of, uh, has to be done here and the communication that's going to have to happen at Queen's Park. But there seemed to be a problem the last time getting those two senior levels of government uh, to cooperate into this, too. Uh, do, do you see that as a problem again this time? Well, it, uh, it, it'll be an interesting dialogue uh, because uh, both of these parties were on the other side of the, uh, the, the fence uh, last time right? Uh, with lots of ideas and certainly suggestions. So we'll see what, uh, what, what, comes, what comes forward from them this time. I mean, I don't. Maybe, maybe the right word is for the finger pointing, but it just seemed no. That's their jurisdiction. No, that's not. No, it's no. That's not our responsibility. Uh, you really, I, 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 just using last time as an experience. You really need to get everybody around the table here as quickly as as possible. You do, and 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 like I said, it's 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 not just solving the problem here on the ground. I don't think that's the solution. I think the solution is is looking at it from from a top down approach and. And, and because, as you've seen yesterday, you put one fire out in Napanee, and, uh, and and it erupts somewhere else in another community. So we're we're not fixing the problem. We're just we're we're just pushing it on to someone else. Well, and it's a different scenario than than the Douglas Creek situation was, obviously, because that was local. That had to do with a piece of property right there. Uh, this is really uh, the root cause of this goes all the way up to British Columbia, which really I think puts the onus on the federal government here to step in here and talk about what what can be done here about that. That's correct, and that's exactly where I, I, I think the issue lies. It's a, it's a promise made by by a federal government that uh, that efforts and reconciliation would uh, would occur, and I think there's frustration on the ground that that those efforts haven't uh, haven't been meaningful, and uh, and the expectation of those uh, you know have been set to such a level. I don't think that, uh, that they knew when they were making those expectations that they were achievable, and so. So it's regrouping, I think, going back, meeting with uh, the powers to be, to be able to set, uh, you know, a, a program forward that people can at least put some, some mile markers against it and be able to say that we are moving forward, we're, we're, we are making the steps uh, to get uh, to a place where we can all live in harmony without having to see these types of protests. When you do have that meeting, uh, and obviously Toby Barrett's got to be a key part of that uh, with the provincial responsibility, uh, I'm sure you've got a long list of questions already, Ken, that you want to talk about. One of them has to be about policing. I mean, that's something that uh, was very contentious, of course, the last time you had an incident like this uh, in Caledonia, as to who was supposed to do what and, and what goals they actually were trying to attain here. 
I would imagine it, it would behoove uh, the province at this point to let us know exactly how they intend to, to approach this. These And I suppose this problem, but I mean these problems, because I mean they seem to be cropping up. We've got rail lines closed here in the Hamilton area as well. So uh, we're waiting for a response from the province at this stage. Yeah, and again, as I said, it's, uh, you know, the police are driven by what the current you know, rules are in terms of engagement and, and, and understanding that, you know, protests being being peaceful, uh, not being illegal, but uh, being allowed to, to disrupt others. And, and, and that goes back to my comment that I, I believe the, the, the police need to be empowered with the idea that where a protest crosses that line and no, and no longer is, is non-disruptive and it does become um, an, an infraction against the rights of others, then that's when, when that line's been drawn and it, and, and it needs to be clearly defined. And I don't think that's happened, which is why our OPP or any police force has a challenge in, in dealing with these types of issues. Ken, when you have a situation like this, and it's, it's evolving, of course, very fluid at this stage, uh, one of the main concerns, obviously, is escalation, uh, something that you want to avoid. How, 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 do you, how do you move in that direction to make sure that this situation, as problematic as it is, doesn't get worse? Well, it's, uh, it, it's it's making sure that uh, you know that the respect is there with uh, with both communities and, and, and understanding that uh, that this is beyond just Caledonia. It's beyond uh, what's happening here locally. This is a national issue. Uh, we have uh, you know the the, the benefits uh, as well as some of the opportunities to have uh, a First Nations as a neighbor. But with that comes these types of challenges, and so I think it's it's finding ways to be able to work together cohesively, you know, in a way to you know to have respect and, and long term relationships, and that's certainly my intent and goal. Uh, I'm I'm not sure, and I, I obviously we can't speak for the folks that are involved in this thing, but uh, there is a Facebook page, of course, called What's Wet and Strong. Uh, Hamilton in solidarity, and uh, the posting they have here says is our intention to stay indefinitely, and we're calling on others to join us. Uh, come for a couple hours, stay for the night, and bring your friends. Uh, this could be going on for quite some time. Uh, how do you, how does the council try to develop some sort of a strategy here? Because I know one of the concerns that was ongoing last time, Ken, obviously, was the impact it was having on the local economy. Uh, if people can't get from point A to point B and, and you know, to stores and things of that nature, uh, it's going to be somewhat problematic. Do you, do you anticipate that this is going to have to be something that's going to be dealt with on a long-term plan? Well, I, I certainly don't want to speculate on, on where it's going to go. I, I, today's uh, a day where we have to uh, to, to meet, have uh, have some conversations with some other uh, levels of government to find out what uh, what steps are going to be taken, and and we'll uh, we'll act accordingly as we move forward and through this. But uh, currently, at this point, we're, we're our, our hope is that uh, we'll be able to see uh, see some some clarity in this, and that the roads will be cleared, and, and people will continue to go about their day to day. But until until we have a little bit more information, it's hard for me to speculate on that. Where do you begin uh, with the communication with the, the with obviously with the protesters in the Six Nations? Do you go to the band council? Do you go on site? What what strategy do you do you develop here? Well, it's a, it's it's a bit of a challenge. I think that uh, my first steps will be to uh, to contact uh, uh, both band council and and those uh, that are in the uh, the Confederacy and, and and hope to have uh, some dialogue with them and exchange a conversation that. Uh, that can have some meaning and 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 and, and understand that, uh, that you know while we we do we do respect you know the intent that uh, you know reconciliation is is uh, is something at the forefront for for many First Nations people 
there has to be a willingness and an ability to be able to work with their neighboring communities, and, and I think that's that's part of the dialogue that we have to have. I would imagine one of those phone calls has to be with the OPP commissioner as well. Well, it, uh, it, they certainly have my name on file up there. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, because obviously we saw what happened up around Belleville yesterday, and, and well, probably, well, I think they've been quite upfront about that, that these, these things that we're talking about today are a response to uh, to what the OPP did yesterday. So, um, you know, for those that are simply saying, look, it's time for the authorities just to go in there and break this stuff up, uh, there are ramifications to that as well, aren't there? There are. Uh, that being said, uh, if uh, if it's, uh, you know, an issue on a rail line in Belleville, then it's an issue on a provincial highway in Caledonia. So it, it, it's the same issue, and it shouldn't be treated any differently in that, uh, you know, I think we have to, as I say, rather than look at the bottom-up approach and, and, and try to put these fires out that are going to continue to erupt, it's looking from the top down, and it's looking for leadership from our federal government, and uh, and, and they need to, to, to step up and, and and move forward with uh, with the agenda of reconciliation that they have put forth in their uh, in this term. Ken, it's early, obviously, uh, but have you had any feedback at all from residents? Is there a sense of resignation to this that here we go again, or are, are they just waiting to find out what's going to happen? Uh, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. I think there's uh, there's a mixed feeling. I mean, a lot of people. Are, or, or, I mean, nobody, I think, was surprised uh, that had been around for, for the previous uh, protests down here that, uh, that, that there was another protest there yesterday. Um, but that doesn't uh, dilute their frustration. I think they're, they're, they still see, you know, some, some anger and animosity towards it. Um, there are some understanding. I mean, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of education and, 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 and understanding of, of what our people in First Nations and Six Nations in particular have gone through. And so it's not to, to belittle it, uh, but, but it's also to understand that, you know, there has to be a way to work together and, and, and doing it uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the faces of our highways and, and disrupting our traffic. It's, it's not, uh, that's not the solution. Well, you've got a busy day ahead of you, obviously. Ken, I really appreciate you taking some time for us this morning to try to give us the lay of the land on how things are, are developing. Uh, hopefully uh, in the next day or two this thing will be resolved, uh, but at least you'll have a game plan and talk to some of the folks that are going to be involved in, in a potential solution on this. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thanks again for this. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Ken Hewitt, of course, the mayor of Haldeman County. Uh, and as I say, it's, it's a sense of deja vu all over again uh, with the Douglas Creek situation that happened, of course, some years ago that dragged on for an awfully long time and, and got ugly. I mean, there were confrontations, there were... Uh, it, it was a messy situation, uh, and, and we don't want to see that happening again. But on the other hand, as, as Ken Hewitt says, uh, there's an understanding, I think, between a lot of people in the community and what's going on here. And uh, th- we really, more than we even did with Douglas Creek, we really need senior levels of government to step up here and to, to resolve this and start being part of the solution here instead of simply sitting back and saying, well, let's just wait. So hopefully this is going to be resolved to everybody's satisfaction uh, sooner than later. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A couple of weeks ago, we were, well, as we were talking about the transportation task force that has been set up by the Ontario Ministry of Transportation and the Minister Carolyn Mulroney, uh, this end of the week was supposed to be the deadline for that task force to come up with the recommendations. The uh, chair of the task force, uh, Tony Valeri, asked for and received an extension uh, until the middle of March uh, so they can continue their work. And uh, we uh, invite the chairman, Tony Villari, back into the studios here with us to give, give us an update on what's going on. First of all, thanks for coming in. A busy time for you today. Busy time for you the last four or five weeks. <laughs> thanks, Bill. Pleasure to be here. Where, where are you in this situation right now? 
Well, as you said, we, we've asked the minister for an extension um, because, um, you know, and it was an extension that was asked for, built on the consensus from, from members of the task force. And so we've been granted a couple of weeks further uh, to the end, uh, to sort of middle of March. Uh, that being the case, obviously our, our intention is to is to try to report as quickly as we, as we can. Sure, uh, but we do have those couple of weeks, and it really allows us to continue some project specific discussions. Uh, uh, there's further engagement based on the projects that we're looking at. There's further further engagement with the ministry, with Metrolinx, with city staff that we feel uh, will be of value to help us uh, ultimately recommend the transit and transportation uh, infrastructure program uh, projects for the city of Hamilton. You're not inventing anything here. No, no, we're not inventing anything. I mean, the, the projects that, that we are um, reviewing are projects that are coming out of the city's uh, transportation master plan. Uh, the province has a greater golden horseshoe uh, transportation mm-hmm. uh uh, plan that has been, you know, they've been consulting on, goes out to, you know, 2031, 2041. It's a big, broad plan. So so it's not, we're not starting with a blank piece of paper saying, okay, what are we going to do? Uh, we are looking at projects that have had uh, some level of public discourse, uh, that technical work has been completed uh, to an extent. Um, and so now we're tasked with, uh, given the billion dollars uh, that the province of Ontario has said they are prepared to spend in the community, uh, we're tasked with uh, recommending uh, the projects to the minister to uh, spend and implement those projects uh, for the city of Hamilton in a um, in a um, you know a period of time where we feel secure that that billion dollars can be in fact deployed. I want to talk about that for a second, and uh, because there's a you know a reality here that we have to exist in, and you're frankly only the only one that's actually brought this up. Uh, this billion dollars is sitting on the table, but you know from your time in politics, uh, times change, situations change. I mean, when this, this government, whether you like them or not, is putting that money on the table, uh, the time frame I would think you guys are working towards here is is the next election is in two years. A new government might just say, you know what, we're not going to give you that money anymore, or hey, we're taking part of it away. You need to actually allocate that money and get that moving. I guess in the next eighteen months, don't you? Right, and and I think what you're you know what you're alluding to, Bill, is kind of the what's the framework that you're using to actually review projects, right? And so for us, uh, a major consideration is how long will uh, recommended projects take to start providing the benefits mm-hmm. to uh, to Hamiltonians, right? So we're looking to provide those projects to the ministry so that we can, in a time frame, uh, be able to deploy the billion dollars. When, at least from my perspective, if if a if a, a higher or a higher level of government says that they are prepared to spend a billion dollars uh, in your community, I feel and I know I, I believe that that the task force members would echo this uh, that. Uh, we've, we're given the opportunity to uh, weigh in and provide our perspective and recommendations to the minister to deploy that money as quickly as possible because we want to ensure that that billion dollars is spent in Hamilton, mm-hmm. right, and not be subject to or, prote- or potentially at jeopardy, in jeopardy, as a result of an election sometime in the future, right? So the, there is the, a certain time frame that you have to work with under, and the projects have to work with under. And I, again, to be clear on this, because I'm hearing all sorts of stuff and seeing stuff on Twitter, but what they anticipate you guys are supposed to be doing and, and the results of this. 
Uh, every one of the projects that you are evaluating right now uh, are projects that are known to somebody around here. I mean, they're 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 not brand new. It's not like wow, where'd that come from? Uh, you're, you're really prioritizing this and trying to find out where we can get the best bang for our buck. We're looking at projects uh, and, and establishing a lens, right, to look at these projects. So, so for instance, if you if you think of so some of the tools that we've used, uh, the uh, council priorities for this mandate of this council, uh, one of the main priorities was uh, a reduction of greenhouse gas. Yeah. So when we look at these projects, we're looking at it through a lens that reflects the council priority. So would this investment reduce greenhouse gas in the, in the city of Hamilton? How how, uh, how might it help reduce the congestion uh, in the movement of people uh, inside of Hamilton? Are we uh, supporting uh, connectivity in the city uh, across the 15 uh, wards? Are we improving the connectivity within the city and connections out to the city? So connections to go, for instance, right? Um, and then that time frame of, of can we get it deployed in a particular uh, time frame so that we are sure and comfortable that the money will be deployed here in Hamilton and be spent in Hamilton. I, I know you can't get into specifics here, but uh, this body of information that you have, and I, I would imagine it's monumental, uh, because the people probably, Tony, are not aware of, of the amount of work that has already been done here. Uh, long-term planning, as you mentioned, transportation plans uh, for the city proper and for, for the outlying areas and for the growth of this as well. So you've got a lot to pick from here. Uh, is, is, is it, are, you, are you comfortable with this? Do you feel as if these are the plans that are going to connect and, and check some of those boxes? Well, if, if you just, uh, I know, I'll, and I'll just, I'll, I'll speak to a few, right? So if sure. you think of all the work that's been done on, on the LRT, right? The, the work that the city of Hamilton has done, the work that Metro Lakes has mm -hmm. done, right? Uh, the work on the blast uh, system, right? Uh, all, that, all that work over a number of years. There's a cycling master plan right, that the city of Hamilton has completed. There's the transportation master plan, which in, involves not only sort of active uh, transportation, uh, but, you know, you've got transit in there, you've got highways, you've got a bunch of things in there. And then you've got the, the Greater Golden Horseshoe plan. Uh, so all of these plans speak to uh, uh, growth, you know, expected growth uh, in, in areas in Hamilton and in the surrounding area. And so we're using these studies and these plans that do require some updating, right? And that's that's part sure, of the work sure. of, of the committee. We're asking MTO, we're asking Metrolinx, we're asking the city of Hamilton, right? Where, where we can get information that updates plans uh, to inform our work, then they're doing that work. And frankly, I have to say, from the city to Metrolinx to the Ministry of Transportation, they've been very, very helpful and, and I would argue very critical to the work of the task force. There's a lot of good expertise in the public service that we're utilizing in order to uh, get that body of knowledge updated on plans that are, are already exist. Uh, and then we would overlay a lens and a criteria that to assess plans that ultimately would would end up in recommendations to the minister. What lens are you looking through? I mean, what what are the, the parameters here? What are, what are you using as guiding principles here? I mean, you mentioned greenhouse gases as one. Yeah. So so I think uh, you know, I think greenhouse gases is one. I think the inter and intra connectivity uh, in the city uh, would be another one. Are you advancing uh, that? Um, uh, are, what kind of economic uh, uplift? Uh, are you getting from a transportation uh, project uh, for the broader uh, community? 
so uh, and then this this idea of can we deploy the dollars within a period of time uh, to each of those goals you've got you know uh, criteria that you would set so how much greenhouse gas you know what was the improvement in interconnectivity mm-hmm. or intraconnectivity right what is the economic uplift and then there's there's obviously then going to be a a compar- a relative comparison of these projects to say uh you know within that billion dollars how could this be best deployed to get the most substantial benefit for hamiltonians uh you know and the hamilton economy i, I get the sense then that you your job here is to look at these through a critical analysis uh, procedure. You're not going to get into the politics of this, though, are you? No, I, I, exactly. Nor, nor should you, I think. Well, well, that's not the mandate of, of, of the task force. The mandate of the task force is to provide uh, a list of recommendations for the minister. I, I would argue, I guess, that the that the politics, for uh, lack of a better way to describe it, the dialogue, I'll say that, I, I, I think the dialogue and uh, about the task force recommendations and perhaps the politics will occur at some point. But it certainly is not occurring uh Within the task force deliberation. So, that's, but yeah, well, that's going to—I would think—go between the uh, provincial government. <coughs> excuse me, the provincial government and the municipal government. I would expect that's, that's what they do. That's what they get paid for to do the politics and to do the debate about this. That you, would be my expectation. Yeah, and you're yeah. simply going to present them with with facts, data, and simply say, "Okay, have at it." Now, you know, and, and if if city council doesn't like something that the transportation minister thinks they're going to do, well, go have that debate. But you're out of there by then. Right, and and so uh, because I don't believe that a political discussion with the task force is going to advance the work of the task force, right? Uh, uh, you know, we're we're hearing from proponents that might be you know for or against a particular project is not really the work of of the task force. Mm. We're assessing the technical merits of investing uh, in transit and transportation uh, infrastructure based on a set of criteria that the task force has agreed to. And then I think, uh, you know, those kinds of discussions and debate about a for or against a particular project are already in the public domain, right? So so it's not... And given, ongoing. And ongoing. So it's not that within the time frame that we have that we need to re, uh, re-adjudicate on people's political position. That's not the role of the task force. Our role is to look at uh, these this list of projects coming from the various uh, plans that are city plans, provincial plans, broader regional plans, apply this lens, get the technical support from Metrolinx, from Ministry of Transportation, from the city of Hamilton, and then establish a list that reflects the criteria and goals that we've that we've put forward. Well, I, I like that approach to this because, as, as we've seen, and all too often, uh, getting into the politics of it is actually what slows the process down. Uh, and you're freed from that. I mean, you don't have to worry about that. There's nobody on your, your committee here that has to worry about getting reelected or or any of this stuff. I mean, you're just looking at the hard facts and saying, okay, how does this work or doesn't it work? Well, exactly, because we're not making a decision. We're, yeah. we're, we're providing a recommendation. And so it's left to those in elected office who ultimately will then make a decision on how to ultimately deploy the billion dollars for the city of Hamilton. And so I, I expect that after our, our task force report that there will be a further dialogue in some fashion. Now, uh, contrary to what I'm seeing from some people on city council, some of the stuff that they're putting up on social media, uh, your mandate is... Uh, to include, but not limited to, public transit. I mean, it's obviously a part of the discussion, but it's not narrowly focused on just public transit. 
Well, it's it's not, and 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 the uh, the terms of reference, uh, the final terms of reference, which we deliberated, uh, you know, as a committee over, is is uh, available and and has been released. Right, it talks about uh, transit and transportation infrastructure. Yeah. Right. So so that transportation infrastructure can be interpreted as, uh, you know, roads, highways, bike lanes, uh, you know walking paths, uh, sort of active uh, transportation, sure. uh, as well as transit and as well as as uh, road uh, infrastructure. So, I mean, we could see potentially, if we ever do see the list, I guess that's really up to the ministry, not up to you guys, uh, even street conversions, I mean, bike lanes, I mean, that's that's all on the table, I guess, at this stage. It's all on the table, and it's all part of the transportation master plan. It's yeah. all part of the city of Hamilton's uh, master cycling, uh, the cycling master plan, right? So, so these are ideas and uh, work that's been done in the transportation air- area um, that we're reviewing. Um, you know, whether they make the final, you know, the recommendations to the minister is is yet to be determined. We're still doing that work. Have you had dialogue with the ministry itself? With, with I, I, I don't know about Minister Mulroney herself, but I mean, with staff there about some of these recommendations and 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 the uh, the process after you hand your report in. What's going to happen next? Well, I, I think that the uh, again, I think the minister has uh, provided uh, some sense of of uh, the go forward. Uh, with respect to uh, the report, like so, we've been given an extension. We'll we'll then submit that to the minister. Uh, my understanding of the process so far is that uh, uh, once we make that submission to the minister, that uh, the minister will want to dialogue with the task force and 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 sort of understand the recommendations. And and in that dialogue, I expect that the Ministry of Transportation and any other transportation experts that might need to come to the table to further sort of develop uh, these recommendations and understanding. And then uh, beyond that, it becomes uh, the minister's document that they will then decide uh, how to put out into the public domain. In your discussions with the minister, uh, uh, do they share your your uh, your zeal to try to get this thing done fast, quickly, sooner than later? Uh, in other words, without further delay, to, to get that money out the door and in, involved in these projects? I have not had any indication uh, uh, from the government or from public officials uh, that there is any hesitation in spending the billion dollars in the appropriate fashion for the city of Hamilton. All your years in politics, I mean, I know people are complaining about this and there's still people that are sore about the cancellation of the, of the support for LRT, etc. But I have never, in in my years, nor I, probably in yours, ever had a government put a big chunk of money down on the table like this and said, you know, this is for you guys. Uh, how are you going to spend this? this? This is a, if you shift the politics away from this, this is an incredible opportunity. I think it is an I think it is an opportunity, and again, to your point, right? I mean, how we got here is not for the task force to deliberate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but the the government has said and has committed to a billion dollars for the city of Hamilton. I think it's our responsibility collectively. You know, we've been tasked, uh, you know, as a group of, of of volunteers to provide this advice to the minister. But I think, uh, you know, if you're out there in community and talking to Hamiltonians and you you frame it the way you've just framed it and said there's a billion dollars to be spent in the city of Hamilton, um, do you, would you like us to go through a long, odious process and then perhaps jeopardize the billion dollars? Or would you like us to identify projects on a priority basis to deploy the billion dollars and get the benefit of the billion dollars today? I think most would say, do your work, make sure the work is anchored in good, sound, 
um, technical and uh, good sound process, and then argue for the deployment of the billion dollars as quickly as possible. Uh, I think a lot of municipalities that might be given this opportunity would say, you know, we should take advantage of it, right? Sure. I, I, I think we should, and that's what I feel uh, the task force members, are, I, I think, would also echo that comment. Tony Valeri, the uh, chair of the uh, ta- Transportation Task Force, uh, good luck as you go through this process, and thanks for coming in today. Pleasure. No, thank you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Harvey Weinstein was uh, found guilty yesterday on two of the charges laid against him. The 67-year-old was found guilty of a criminal sex act for assaulting production assistant Mimi Haley in her apartment in 2006 and third-degree rape of a woman in 2013. Uh, They found him not guilty on the most serious charges, predatory sexual assault that could have resulted in a life sentence. He has yet to be sentenced, but uh, he's no longer on bail. He's behind bars right now awaiting sentencing. And uh, as we also know, that uh, there is another trial scheduled for Los Angeles. Uh, He's going to have to make his way out there at some point. Uh, under supervision, of course, uh, to face uh, similar charges from a, a number of other people, one of them who shall remain anonymous, apparently. Uh, but it is a, a banner day, and and as uh, District Attorney Cy Vance said in his comments uh, outside the courtroom yesterday, uh, the, the bravery of the woman needs to be uh, commended, and uh, it's also... Uh, I, I guess a landmark case, simply because, let's face it, the charges against Weinstein uh, really seem to, to be the motivation for the me, hashtag MeToo movement, uh, which is still obviously uh, something that we need to talk about. Uh, but what impact is it going to have on other victims? What kind of message does uh, what happened in this courtroom send to others? Uh, I want to bring uh, Jessica Badia-Dampty into the conversation, Executive Director of the Sexual Assault Center, Sasha, uh, here in Hamilton. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Hi, good morning, Bill. Thank you for allowing us to be on your show this morning. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of this. And while we know the ha- the hashtag MeToo movement, then, which really uh, seemed to evolve uh, from the charges laid against Weinstein, uh, now that the, there's been convictions, uh, what kind of a message does that send to, to the greater community? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it sends two messages to the greater community. First, um, as you mentioned, it is a landmark case that has um, brought sexual assault and, and sexual violence um, to the forefront. Um, and has allowed the Me Too movement to have a greater platform. Um, and so this uh, this case and um, this verdict has shown survivors that um, it's possible to have a conviction um, against sexual, sexual violence. Um, so that is a positive. However, it, the case also brings forth negative aspects um, for survivors um, in terms of knowing that the, the rate of... Um, of, sorry, the rate for um, people to actually be convicted of of uh, sexual assaults um, is low. Uh, we know that sexual violence is very underreported um, in the justice system. We know that it is difficult for survivors to come forward um, to friends and family to say that they are survivors, that they have experienced sexual violence. And knowing that it took more than 80 women to come forward and say, this happens to me too at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. And of those 80 women, it was approximately six women who actually had a trial. And of um, those charges that were laid against uh, Harvey Weinstein, only two resulted um, in this guilty verdict. As you mentioned, um, the most serious charges um, he was found not guilty of. Um, so it, it, it just furthers um, those, the reality um, and brings it more present that survivors aren't believed. To put this in context as well, though, Jessica, and you and I have talked about this in the past, 
Uh, this was a long, arduous process. I mean, these charges were laid uh, in 2017. Uh, and, and, you know, what these women had to go through, I, and, and it, it, by the way, just about everything that we've talked about in the past, about, you know, the, them being victimized once again as they go through the trial, uh, they, had to, they had to go wade through that. And I know they got a lot of support from, from obviously, their, their lawyers but, and from the greater community at the same time, but to actually go through that and, and, and to experience that had to be a, a, a tremendously arduous process. Absolutely, absolutely, and we do recognize that um, coming forward as a survivor and letting individuals know this happens and then um, having to think about laying charges um, is very, very scary because we know about, as you mentioned, the arduous process that you go through, having to go to the police station to report and then having to be interviewed um, and and uh, at times being uh, treated as if you're the one who perpetrated something and not being believed um, is horrible for survivors. And, and we saw that as, uh, with some of the cross-examination, of course, you know, well, well what Absolutely. were you doing there? And, uh, and and a lot of the things that have been hallmarks of past cases uh, seem to have been addressed uh, because the stories were very similar. You know, why did you maintain a relationship after that then if you if you felt that he, you know, he'd been, uh, that had been a sexual assault? And, and uh, in the past, judges, and let's face it, uh, you know, prosecuting attorneys in the, as well, uh, would look at that and say, well, that just blows your argument out of the water. I, I guess maybe one of the best takeaways that, that we could get out of uh, the Weinstein trial was it did sort of boil down to a he said, she said, but they believed her. Uh, they, in other words, they right off the bat said, "We understand what you're going through." They were not dismissive of it just because, you know, they didn't seem to be uh, what they considered to be uh, solid evidence for, from Weinstein. But they just wanted to understand that. Look, this is what happens, and we need to listen to the story. And they believed those stories. And I think that is a very positive um, in our society, a positive example um, of how education and training um, is is working in society, is working for those folks who are involved in the Weinstein trial, the lawyers and the judges. Um, We know that in Ontario right now we're calling for a mandatory sexual assault training for judges and for folks who are involved in the legal justice system so that when survivors come forward, um, these individuals who are responsible for our justice system understand the neurobiology of trauma, know that there is not one standard way for a survivor to act or for a survivor to be after um, experiencing sexual violence. Um, so uh, these things that you're mentioning is a positive example of how uh, public education and prevention is working in the legal system, but as well in our, in, our, in our society, in our cultures, in our communities here, in that we're working to create a culture of consent where we dispel those rape, rape myths, where we um, uh, take the lead and, um, and we take uh, trainings and provide trainings that are grounded by lived experience and delivered by subject matter experts on sexual violence. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up about the training as well, because I know it's a rather contentious issue with some people anyway in the legal community. Uh, and of course, on the federal level, that's a, this is the private member's bill that uh, former MP and, and cabinet minister Ronna Ambrose uh, supported and, and has tried to move through. Well, it's being revived now, and hopefully there's going to be, a, I, I hope, a fulsome discussion and debate about that in Ottawa uh, to try to move forward. And Because you've heard some of the pushback, and I know I have on this program as well, Jessica, that said, come on, judges don't really need that. Well, everybody needs it, including judges, uh, to be able to touch everybody. on those points. I mean, it's a very, very important part of that process, isn't it? It definitely is. Um, everybody, including judges, I think everybody, especially judges, because they're the ones who uphold um, the laws, the rules of law that we have here um, in our province, in our countries as well, and they're the ones who are able to, um, who ultimately have the, the decision-making power, um, and also wanting to recognize that, um, uh, like this case, 
um, reminds us of sexual violence thrives on unchecked power and privilege um, and recognizing um, that survivors are often seen as less credible based on their race, their disability, their gender orientation, and their class as well. So um, keeping all of these things um, and systems of power um, informing our training for everybody and creating these cultures of consent is very important. Oh, absolutely. And, of course, we've got the ongoing investigation about missing Indigenous women that uh, that seems to be dragging along, but not to the extent that it should be in situations like that. But this uh, public education really is something that we've got to talk about and, and, and I think put out there because a lot of the myths about uh, sexual assault, uh, you know, why did you have a relationship, etc., why did you see them again? It's, and we heard this in the Gameshi trial. We certainly heard it in the Weinstein trial as well. Uh, but I think we have a better understanding of the trauma that, that, that victims go through and how they have to deal with that trauma. And it, it, it's, it, it happens very different ways of, with different people. Absolutely, absolutely. And the way that individuals um, respond um, when when uh, sexual assault is happening and then after the sexual assault has happened is different from everybody. And um, that's why these uh, trainings for everybody in our, in our um, society is important um, for us to understand the neurobiology of trauma and uh, appreciate um, how reactions and how healing is very different for everybody. There's not one standard way of, of uh, being a survivor of sexual violence. Um, and as you mentioned, um, public education and prevention education is important. It's crucial um, and it's important to start at the education level in schools, outside of schools, starting from when we're children, creating that culture of consent with our children, within our families too. It can be something, um, I don't want to uh, minimize it, but something I would say as easy as asking your child if they would like to hug a family member when they see them, not forcing them to, t- to give hugs or kisses, um, even t- to grandma or grandpa. It's just, here's grandma and grandpa, please say hello to them. Would you like to give them a hug or would you like to give a high five? Or uh, just respecting those boundaries that children have as well for themselves. Well, it starts at an early age, doesn't it? Definitely. And, and obviously, you know, to, to go to the, I guess, the grotesque end of it, which is a, a predator like Weinstein, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you look at him and, and say, okay, that's that's what this guy did for so many years, lording over people like this and basically saying, I'm going to ruin your life and ruin your career if you don't just do whatever I say to you. But there are various forms of that. They're, they're maybe not as egregious as what Weinstein did, but sexual assault. And I heard the, 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 the DA, Mr. Vance, made that point yesterday. I'm sure you saw in the, in the post-conference uh, uh, that was held after that. A sexual assault is sexual assault. It, you know, the, it is what it is. You know, that some are very egregious, like what Weinstein did. Uh, some might, uh, might, others might say, "Well, that's not that bad." It is. It's sexual assault, and it needs to be dealt as sexual assault. Absolutely, um, and sexual, like you said, sexual assault is sexual assault. Uh, rape is about power and control, and not about sex. And there are no gray areas. It is never okay um, for um, anybody to to touch you or to do anything to you that you don't want done. We know that the stats say that one in six boys. Um, and one in six girls will experience some form of sexual violence before they're they're 18 years old. Um, and those stats are one in five women and one in 71 men will experience sexual violence in their lives um, as well. So um, we have to create this culture of consent. We have to dispel these rape myths, and we have to believe survivors from the get-go. Are we doing a, a, a decent job at that? Are we moving the, the, this this process forward to do judges and, and, and of course, judgments like uh, what happened with Weinstein yesterday, do they help that cause to educate the public and create that awareness? Um, I, I do think they are helpful um, for sure uh, because of the, the, the big platform that they have. It's all over media right now, um, and it's, 
um, allows for folks to be more informed and it allows us to have this platform um, with you right now, Bill, on the radio to be able to speak about these issues of sexual violence and to speak about our programs that we offer at sexual assault centers across Ontario. Um, it also allows us to, to mention that um, sexual assault centers are, are crucially underfunded and right now we're, we're hoping for more funds to come in to be able to, to, to be able to continue to deliver the services that we offer to survivors in our communities. Um, we have growing wait lists for um, counseling services. Our crisis support lines are ringing 24-7 um, um, with survivors coming in. And then we know that when uh, trials such as, as these come to the limelight, survivors are triggered. Um, individuals are seeking more support on how to support their family members or friends. Um, who are survivors of sexual violence too. So it's important um, to keep this at the lim limelight and for communities to respond to governments and let them know that the work that sexual assault centers are doing and folks are doing to support survivors is crucial. Well, and that's a key part of this debate and this discussion uh, because places like Sasha, the Sexual Assault Center, and, and we've talked with other uh, jurisdictions as well, Jessica, uh, yes. the fact that, that senior levels of government, or any level of government for that matter, would even consider uh, budget cutbacks in areas like this is, is just incredulous that people would even uh, they, it indicates to me anyway and I think to the greater public that they have no concept of, of the importance of, of that kind of work and that kind of counseling and that kind of assistance that the places like Sasha offer to victims. Thank you. Um, I agree wholeheartedly, and I wish um, that our, our our governments would recognize the work that we're doing here. Um, at Sasha, we last year we used to have a 10-month waiting list for counseling, which is horrible. It's the longest wait list that we've had for counseling. Um, and the Ontario government was able to offer all sexual assault centers, all 42 sexual assault centers across Ontario, $1 million to be shared among the 42. So with um, our share of that $1 million, Sasha was able to hire a part-time counselor um, and just with that one part-time counselor coming on to our, our staff team, we've seen our wait list drop to three to four months, which is a big improvement on 10 months. However, we would love to have no wait list so that when survivors call us, we're able to say, yes, we can see you within a week. You can come in for um, a support appointment, and then we'll see you within a week, within two weeks max, I would say. Um, so right now, a, month, a wait list that we have is unacceptable as well. Survivors can't wait for the support. They shouldn't have to wait for the support that, that um, is owed to them. Um, and so that they can find healing, um, as well as uh, the benefits that it does to our society as well, for survivors to be well, for all of us to be well, and our communities to be healthy. Yeah, but that money's got to be sustainable. It can't be one-time funding where you have to go cap in hand every year to the government and say, we, we need more. Uh, that should be evident to the government, that this is a very, very important service that's being offered and delivered uh, to victims. And, and you know, you to be able to do your job, you've got to know that that money is going to be there to be able to supply that that staff that are so much greatly needed in situations like this. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, so our funding runs out on March 31st. Our colleagues at the Ontario Coalition of Rape Crisis Centers met with the Ministry, Minister of Attorney General um, recently and asked for that money to be sustainable for that, at least that $1 million that was offered to all sexual assault centers at this one time be something that is ongoing, um, as well as asking that uh, sexual assault centers not be closed or not be um, uh, amalgamated with, with, with other centers. It, it only makes sense, and, and I, I don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get from the minister, but, you know, as governments de de develop their priorities, and we're getting kind of a mixed message from Queen's Park these days about just what their priorities are, 
Uh, but you've got to look at stuff like this, healthcare delivery, but especially something like this, people that have been victimized in situations like this. Uh, and by the way, I want to be clear on something, because uh, we've had this discussion in the past, when you talk about wait times, uh, nobody gets turned away. I mean, the, you know, the, there's a meeting and you try to do what you can, but as as for the counseling itself and the work that has to be ongoing, and it's a long and uh, but very worthwhile process for victims that do come forward like this and, and ask for your help. Uh, that's where the wait list is. Uh, but you don't want that wait list. You don't want a wait list, period. I mean, if, if you're you know, having chest pains and the doctor said, well, come back to me in about three months and we'll see what we can do for you, that would be unsatisfactory. And, well, it's the same thing with sexual assault victims. Uh, absolutely, and sexual assault centers in Hamilton are the only centers that offer free counseling, free uh, specialized counseling for survivors of sexual violence. Um, it's free, confidential, non-judgmental counseling that's... Um, um, survivor-led and survivor-focused and centered. Um, and so, like you say, we don't turn anybody away. Um, uh, you call Sasha, you ask for uh, counseling, we go through the intake process, um, let you know where our policies and procedures are, and then put you on the wait list. And while you are on the wait list, um, we offer our 24-hour crisis support line that has, up to up to right now, from January to December 2019, already received um, over a 1,000 phone calls um, and we have volunteers and staff members um, uh, available to support survivors and also to provide accompaniments to hospital and police if that's something that survivors are looking for. Um, so nobody is turned away, um, and we just want to be in a position where we can offer um, better services and offer services in a more uh, efficient manner. We should also mention, uh, for people that are, are considering this, maybe through our conversation here today, hopefully, Jessica, some people would say, maybe I should reach out, I do need some help. Uh, this is not a part of a process to suggest that you need to to come public or go forward with this, uh, as these women did with the Weinstein situation. And the numbers indicate, as you told us at the beginning of the conversation, uh, the overwhelming majority of, of victims of sexual assault don't go through the legal process for a variety of reasons. You don't need to. Uh, nobody's no. going to force you to do that. Absolutely not, no. So when you call Sasha, as I mentioned, it is survivor-led. It is survivor-centered. We are, we are here to support you, and we believe you. Um, we believe all survivors. So um, if, if you choose to go forward um, to, with the reporting to the police, we will support you to that process. We will accompany you to the police station if you like. If you, if you feel that that's not something you don't want to do, you don't have to do it either. Absolutely not. Uh, continue good luck with you. Uh, we're going to, again, have further discussions, I guess, in the next couple of weeks uh, about uh, this funding formula uh, that, as you mentioned, runs out in just about four weeks now. And uh, hopefully we can put some pressure on the provincial government to uh, to see the light here and, and understand the great work that you're doing. Jessica, thanks so much on a busy day for uh, joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and um, have a w wonderful day. You too. Jessica Bonilla Dampley, of course, Executive Director of the Sexual Assault Center here in Hamilton. And by the way, everything is totally anonymous uh, when you do reach out to them. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.